To the Matcast. This is a podcast that seeks to bring the church world and the art world closer together. My name is Matt Anderson. Thank you for joining us on this episode. If you have not done so, oh my word, take five seconds, please, and subscribe or follow this podcast on your platform of choice. And uh, and then if you could take another 10 to 15 seconds, if you could write us a five-star review on Apple. Uh, and really just put, he's all right. And that's it. Seriously, with five stars, that really will help us out. Um, and if you would like to maybe advertise on this podcast, if you have a business, you can inquire about that by uh, emailing me at mattcastworld. Uh, that's all together, mattcastworld at gmail.com. Well, just a quick housekeeping item before we get going. Uh, this will be the final episode of 2021 uh, of the Madcast, at least for this year. <laughs> Got to be careful there. Uh, I learned last year with the holidays, people are so busy that listening to podcasts is about the least thing on their mind. So this will be the last one. Our next episode will uh, be released on January 4th, uh, 2022. We hope you'll continue uh, to support this. So today, uh, for the Christmas season, I wanted to read you a story that I wrote a few years ago. It's called The Candy Cane Man. Um, there's a specific group of people, well, two groups that I'm shooting for in this story. One is for uh, people helpers. Uh, this one will center on a pastor, but I think of teachers, coaches, uh, mentors, uh, anyone in people helping professions, therapists, you name it. Because it can get really weary in the helping people business. And we can start to question our effectiveness. The story is for you. But secondly, the story is for all those folks in churches who make it happen all the time. And hardly anything that you do is seen or fully appreciated. Uh, they'll never really be on stages. They'll, they won't be receiving applause. They won't be famous on any level. But I believe they will be applauded by the host of heaven when they arrive in eternity. So to them and to you, my wonderful listeners, the Matcast proudly presents The Candy Cane Man.
There are very few things that stand the test of time. Homes are constructed and, after decades, eventually fall apart and are condemned. Great paintings, once treasured and admired, can be stolen or slowly fade away with exposure to light. Water can both erode the land or evaporate from it, changing borders and boundaries. Riches can be gained and lost. Today's cutting-edge technology becomes tomorrow's dinosaur. And that's because the dinosaurs are no longer with us either. Empires rise and fall. Leaders of nations come and go. Even the stories and memories of great people can be lost. Why, just yesterday I was driving in the city and stopped at a traffic light. While waiting for the light to change, I looked to my left and saw the street sign for 3rd Avenue. But above it was a smaller sign that said, Esther Langley Way. Apparently, a part of this avenue, or maybe the whole thing, I can't be sure, was named for her. The problem is, I have no idea who Esther Langley is or was. Probably was. Apparently, she did something important at some point, but I have no idea what. It must have been half decent, or the city wouldn't have gone to the trouble of putting up the sign. But I'm sure if I asked 100 random people in the city, who is Esther Langley? I don't know if anyone could give the correct answer. So I can only hope that at least Esther's family and dear friends know her story and are able to pass it on from generation to generation. Because there are very few things that stand the test of time. So if you will allow me, I want to spend the the next number of minutes telling you one of those stories about one of those people who belong above street signs. I call him the candy cane man. Maybe you will pass it on so that it will last at least for one more Christmas. I'm the pastor of Living Water Church, a wonderful congregation of about 200 people. The church has been around for about 70 years, and I know almost everything there is to know about it, even though I've only been pastor here for four years. That's because this is also the church in which I grew up. When I graduated high school, I left for college and then seminary. In the meantime, my family also left the city for better job opportunities. After 12 years of ministry, I was excited to come back and pastor the church that I had known since childhood. There's a good and bad side to that. Good because I already know the history of the church and the city. Bad because there are still folks around who remember their pastor as little Jeremy Grove, scooting down the hallway to children's church. I'm sure it's difficult for some of them to see a once chubby kid with a Spider-Man t-shirt now as their pastor. But they hang in there with me, even though a select few still feel the urge to pinch my cheek now and then and say, I remember when you were just wee high. Well, since it's just us here, I should also admit to you that at times I can be pretty jaded and cynical. 
the ministry can do that to a person if you're not careful. And I wasn't careful. This is not easy work. It seems like everyone has an opinion about my preaching every single Sunday. Most of the time it's good, but not always. Of course, people also have opinions about, well, everything. The nursery, landscaping, quality of coffee, bulletin size, parking lot spaces, volume level, lighting, paper supply for the bathrooms, room temperature, song selection, and version of the Bible I am preaching from. I like to joke that a pastor never needs to take a poll because he or she gets a large sample of opinions without them having to call anyone. It can wear you down if you're not careful. And I wasn't careful. And then there are the people you've never met who just show up at the office or after a service to talk to, quote, the pastor because they have a desperate need. You've never met them before, but they begin telling you the most heart-wrenching stories. Then you have to pretend to be Solomon and wise enough to know whether or not to help them to pay their rent or their electric bill. For instance, I was working in my office one afternoon when my assistant informed me that there was a gentleman who needed to see a pastor. Again, that's usually code for he needs money. Sorry, that's how cynical I've become. Anyhow, he sat in front of my desk and began weeping openly about his father passing away in Chicago. His father was a preacher and He was an evangelist trying to make ends meet by working odd jobs. He said he had a job all lined up the next morning, but he had nowhere to stay the night. His car was in the shop, and he couldn't afford to get home to Chicago in a few days for the funeral. So if there was anything I could do, again, I'm I'm hoping for wisdom. Tears are absolutely streaming down his face as he pours out his heart to me. So I decided to use our church account at a local hotel to give him a room for the night. Then expressing he had no money for food, I I went to an ATM and personally took out $60 of my own money to give him a little extra. I dropped him off at the hotel and I was glad I was able to help a stranger and be the hands and feet of Jesus. A few weeks later, I, I told that story to a pastor friend of mine who informed me that the same guy had told him the same story one year before. I got taken. And whether you're in the ministry or not, it can wear you down if you're not careful. And I wasn't careful. So while I'm in full confession mode here, I should also admit to you that Christmas is not my favorite time of year. Not for a while. Not since I was a child. Back then, I would start listening to Christmas music in October. I I annoyed everyone around me, even my closest friends. They they started calling me Yule, you you know, as in Yuletide, because of my love for Christmas. Hey, Yule, they'd say. How about a little Hark the Herald Angels sing? You know, like I was a karaoke machine or something. I, I mean, like, really? I mean, the, the, the nerve. Like, like I have my dignity, right? <laughs> so, so anyhow, after I sang it, uh, they would usually ask for another one. And I would keep the vibe going. Christmas was my thing. It was my family's thing. 
My mom would decorate the house from top to bottom. No room in the house was spared from her Christmas touch. We had reindeer oven mitts in the kitchen, a red velvet table runner in the dining room, white lights around all bedroom windows, and in the bathroom, special red hand towels with green embroidery. Mind you, these special red hand towels with green embroidery could not be touched by wet or dirty hands. No, these are for when company comes over, she would say. Of course, the guests really weren't allowed to touch the special red hand towels with green embroidery either. So I'm not sure what the point was. Oh, yes. The point is that my family was all about Christmas. Well, that changed when I was 14. Since I could remember, my dad rarely joined us at church on Sunday. Maybe he would stop in on Christmas Eve or Easter or Mother's Day when mom got on his case about buying a corsage for her, making the day special by going with her. He never kept us from going, but there was also a standing rule that we didn't talk about spiritual things with him. He was a hardworking guy and worked at the local assembly plant his whole adult life. That's what people did back then. They put in their 30 to 40 years, retired, lived off their pension. Well, all of that came to a screeching halt the fall of my 15th year. My dad was informed there would be massive cutbacks and layoffs at his plant, and he was a part of it. The layoffs hit many folks in the city. Our church lost about 10 families due to relocations. Our family lost our father, feeling as if he wasn't contributing to the health of the family and not wanting to face a Christmas with few presents. Dad left us two weeks before Christmas that year. I found out later that family and friends loaned or gifted money to my mother so we could have Christmas. He would never be in the same home with us again. Instead, he divorced my mom, surrendered custody and the house to her, moved to another city, and found someone else to start a new life with. As you can imagine, my mother was devastated. Christmas was really never the same again. Now, Mom became the breadwinner of the home, and while we went to school, she worked two jobs to keep us afloat. So there was never really time for elaborate decorations anymore. Oh, there would be a wreath on the door, and we still managed to put up the tree, but no table runner, no special oven mitts, no special red hand towels with green embroidery. For her, Christmas became something she had to do for the sake of the kids. The second we all moved out, so did the decorations, given equally among her children. Today, as she sweats it out in retirement in Florida, if you look through her condo, you would have no idea Christmas was coming soon. I would love to say that is my only sad Christmas story, but it isn't. My wife and I had always wanted to have a large family. After our first child, Noah, was born, we suddenly had difficulty getting pregnant. After consulting with a specialist, we were informed three years ago, right after Thanksgiving, that we did not realize how lucky we were to have Noah and that we shouldn't plan on any other natural childbirths moving forward. 
It was a devastating blow to us. After a number of months of tears and prayer, we began considering adoption, both here and abroad. But in the midst of those discussions, miracle of miracles, my wife Kelly became pregnant with our second child, who would be due in May. We were giving thanks to God in church and on social media about the Lord's miracle baby in our lives. But our dreams turned to nightmares when Kelly felt a pain in her abdomen a few months into the pregnancy. Rushing to the ER, we found out we had lost little Kayla two weeks before Christmas. To borrow from the old Christmas carol, nothing was calm, nothing was bright. Now I really knew how my mother felt as I tried to match little Noah's enthusiasm for Christmas. And like mom, I was doing a horrible job. Kelly actually seemed to rise to the occasion better than me. Oh, she was hurt, no doubt. Many nights I would comfort and hold her as she cried herself to sleep. But at home, I was acting like a ghost of Christmas past. So what do you do when you're the pastor of a church and you've become a Scrooge when it comes to Christmas? It's not like you can tell your board, hey, you know that whole Christmas thing? I think we're going to skip it this year. Not if you like being employed. So what's a pastor to do? Grin and bear it, that's what. Christmas is happening whether you like it or not, so buck up, buddy boy, I tell myself. Whether Christmas Eve communion, special kids programs, Christmas caroling to shut-ins, or choir cantatas, I put on my best Perry Como, Nat King Cole, Bob Hope, Kathy Lee Gifford, Michael Buble, or Blake Shelton Face, whichever era you relate to. Which brings us to John Campbell, the hero of our story. John was one of those folks who knew me from way back when. And over the decades, both as a child at the church and now as pastor of the church, I've only known John Campbell to be a greeter. He has done nothing else during his time at Living Water. I'm sure he has had multiple opportunities to join the board or do something more visible to the congregation. If he did receive those invitations, he must have turned them all down because nothing made old John happier than opening the outside door to folks walking in from the parking lot, smiling broadly at them and extending his hand to welcome them to Living Water Church. He did this for years. But as he got older, it was tougher for him to handle the cold winds of Ohio at the front door, so he moved to a spot just outside the sanctuary as people entered for worship, distributing the weekly bulletin to folks with a charming smile and a twinkle in his eye. If greeting is an art, he was the Rembrandt of it. I wish I could say that about all churches and department stores. You know what I mean? Those folks you see when you walk into a church or store and realize there clearly was no vetting process for this position. There's nothing like walking into a church for the first time and the first person you meet has the disposition of a pit bull who hasn't been fed for three days. But John was a true artiste. He would position himself at the door between the church office and the sanctuary. So when pastors left the office to walk toward the sanctuary, John's face was usually the first they would see. 
My first contact with John was in children's church. Before working the main door or sanctuary, he would actually greet the kids as they walked or ran, in my case, into the children's church meeting room. He would smile real big at us and say, Good morning, kids. Are you ready to worship the Lord? When I saw him, I thought he was 122 years old, you know, like Methuselah or something. My grandparents had all passed before I was born, so I wasn't used to being around 122-year-old people. He was really friendly, though, and I liked him. Starting the Sunday after Thanksgiving, he would hand out candy canes to the kids as they left the room at the end of church. He had these small, individually wrapped candy canes that he would hand out to each kid with that usual big smile of his. Knowing that the universal language of love for children is sugar, he became even more popular with the younger set. But the strangest thing would happen when it was my turn to get a candy cane from him. Instead of taking a small one from the large bag he was holding, he would reach into his suit jacket pocket and pull out a candy cane five times as large. There you go, young man, he would say. I would look up at him mystified, wondering what I had done to deserve such an honor. I would think about this for a grand total of two seconds and then quickly forget so I could glory in my winnings. My friends were jealous. No fair, you got a huge candy cane. Sorry guys, I'd respond. He did that every single week too. As I grew up and observed John Campbell, I realized that he had a few select larger candy canes that he would give to certain people consistently, I being one of them. I couldn't figure out the link between all of us, so the mystery always persisted. John would later do this when he was working the sanctuary door as people left. Only as he handed out the candy canes to our members, he would say, Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1. Some of the adults were a little insulted, believing they were being treated like children. But knowing that the universal language of love for adults is sugar, he became even more popular with the older set. Even through my teenage years, when I would leave the sanctuary and approach John, out came one of the larger candy canes, with his usual Isaiah chapter one. My friends would give me a hard time and make jokes like I was his secret grandson or something. Almost two decades later, I became the pastor of Living Water Church. Over the years, I had forgotten about the candy cane thing, but I never forgot John Campbell. My first Sunday, I emerged from the office wing and there before me was the charming Scotsman armed with a fistful of church bulletins. With his eyes slightly squinted, face grinning, and teeth showing, he extended a church bulletin to me, as if I didn't know what was going on at the church, and said, Good morning, Pastor. Excited to hear your message this morning. Even if I wasn't preaching, he would do the same thing. Good morning, Pastor. Excited to hear your message this morning. I'd say, well, John, we actually have a guest this morning. He would quickly recover and say, Oh, well, let them know. I've been praying for their message all week. It was hard to walk away from John without a smile because his smile never seemed to leave. 
The Sunday after Thanksgiving, John was up to his usual after-the-service hijinks. It was our version of a Salvation Army bell ringer. There he was, handing out small, individually wrapped candy canes at his door and saying, Isaiah chapter 1! Isaiah chapter 1! As a now formally educated pastor, I started realizing that Isaiah 1 is not a traditional Christmas scripture. Maybe he, he meant Luke 1, which tells the story of Mary and Elizabeth being visited by an angel and promised miracle children. But good old John wouldn't have gotten the wrong testament. He must have meant Isaiah 9, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But how do you correct a distinguished man who has been doing the same thing for 30 years? So hey, scripture is scripture and it's all good. I decided not to point him in the right direction. What surprised me most was when I finally emerged from the sanctuary. And as you might guess, it takes a while for me to leave the room. There are usually a line of people waiting to talk to me or be prayed for. It was about a half hour after the service. When I got to John, he reached in his pocket and brought out the much bigger candy cane. Here you go, Pastor. Great job today. And don't forget... Isaiah 1. Oh, I won't forget, I thought. That would be impossible. I politely nodded and returned to the office to gather my things and drive home. As I mentioned before, that first Christmas at Living Water was glorious. But after our personal loss, the next two were awful. Each successive holiday season, I would become increasingly angry and bitter. All the hardships we went through as a family made me a tougher guy to be around, especially at Christmas. You know how when you get lied to, you start to wonder if anyone is telling the truth? That was the guy I became. I wondered if anyone was who they said they were. Even some of the dear saints of living water, I would see one of our families at church and thought, there's no way they're like that at home. One of my board members could pray down the house at church, but with absolutely no proof, I started to think it was all an act and that church was the only place he prayed. I never said it aloud, of course, not even to my wife, but I felt so disappointed by God and life and people that I just went through the motions with little passion or meaning. I even started to be cynical about John Campbell. He would hand me a bulletin with that same Scottish charm of his, and I would politely nod and accept it, all the while thinking he's probably a jerk outside of this place. Nobody smiles like that all the time. And at Christmas time, he would once again hand me a large candy cane as I left the sanctuary each Sunday. It got harder and harder to receive those as the weeks wore on. One time I said, John, there is no way I can possibly eat all of these large candy canes. Well, not missing a beat and still smiling, by the way, he said, Oh, that's okay. It's just a gift that I want you to have. Isaiah 1. I would think, yeah, right. Isaiah 1. I get it. I get it. I really didn't know much about John's story. He had been a member at the church forever and, of course, a greeter. But other than that there wasn't much to know about him. I knew his wife had passed away years ago and that he never remarried. He raised his two daughters alone. 
they had moved away and had their own families, leaving John here by himself. He had retired 10 years ago from a factory job, but I didn't know how he spent his days and nights outside of the church. Well, this past June 15th, I got the call at 6 in the morning. It was John's daughter, Carol. She had been trying to call her father most of the day before, but with no success. Fearing the worst, she drove an hour and a half to check on her father and found him lifeless in his recliner with the TV still on. Best guess is that he dozed off at some point the previous day and never regained consciousness. By the time I came by the house that afternoon, much of the family was there. I sat at the dining room table with his daughters, a son-in-law, their families, and some grandchildren romping about the house. Carol said, Pastor Jeremy, I'm so glad you get to do Dad's funeral. You were his favorite. As we planned the funeral, however, I found out they weren't looking for me to do a long message. Maybe just share a few scriptures, mention my impressions of John, and let the congregation hear the gospel too. Even though I was leading the funeral, it was a lot less to do than usual. Carol said there would probably be a number of people who would give testimonials at the funeral, and they wanted to have time for them. Three days later, we gathered in our church sanctuary for the funeral. The casket was open just in front of the platform for people to pay their final respects. Many of our faithful church were there, but there was a host of people I had never seen before, some in uniforms, some wearing suits, and others wearing jeans and a button-up shirt. My part was mostly at the beginning, sharing some appropriate scriptures about not fearing death, Jesus' resurrection, and the promise of heaven. I even added a charming reference about wondering who was in heaven to greet John when he entered, that hopefully John got as good as he gave. But it was what followed that changed my life. His daughter Carol came up to the platform and said she wanted to share some thoughts about her father. Most everyone here at Living Water Church knew my dad as the friendly greeter who welcomed people each Sunday into the sanctuary by giving them two things, a broad smile and a new bulletin. You could hear people in the audience chuckling in appreciation of the man that they both knew and loved. Carol continued, But that was the extent of what most people knew about him. I have to admit that I was one of them. That's pretty much all I knew either. This is something you can't say of many people these days, Carol added. But I want you to know that my dad was exactly the same person at home that he was at church. He was that same smiling man who got my sister and me out of bed, who prepared our lunches, who dropped us off and picked us up at school, and who even corrected us. Dad never raised his voice in anger. He didn't have to. My sister and I knew we had crossed the line or even disappointed him when his smile was gone. That alone was enough to bring us to tears and accept whatever discipline we had coming. I know that sounds made up, but when you have a man so full of joy and life, it creates a kind of atmosphere in the home. Our mother died when we were young, and Dad never looked to anyone as a replacement. 
As selfish kids, we were glad we didn't have to deal with a stepmother. But as we got older and ourselves interested in romance, we asked Dad why he hadn't married again. He would always respond with, Well, once you've had perfection, there's nowhere to go but down. He kept a picture of her on his nightstand the rest of his life. He adored our mother and never saw fit to replace her. There's certainly nothing wrong with finding love after a spouse passes, but Dad just had different priorities. He decided to devote the rest of his life to the Lord and us girls. What I'd like to do is have my son come up and say a few words. Carol's 10-year-old son, Titus, uncomfortably walked up to the platform as I lowered the mic stand to be at the right level. Once I sat back in my chair on the platform, the young man unfolded a piece of paper and began reading. Apparently, Carol and her husband had divorced, and Titus was really close to his grandfather, John. He said, I always loved it when I could come up here during the summer and go fishing with Pat Pat. And whenever we got to the lake, Pat Pat would always say, Those fish don't stand a chance today. I remember when he showed me how to cast bait a hook, but the best times were when we just sat in the boat together. Neither of us really caught much of anything, but it didn't matter. It was always great spending time with him. I will miss him so much. At which point Titus teared up, folded the piece of paper, and quickly returned to his seat on the front row. He wasn't the only one crying. Carol's younger sister Olivia followed and walked onto the platform holding a candy cane. Holding it high for everyone to see, she said, Well, I guess she knew this was coming. Everyone laughed at the mention of John Campbell's trademark. I'm not sure when Dad started handing out candy canes, but I can't remember a time when he didn't. He started it by giving them to the kids as they left church during the holidays. Well, eventually he would do that outside the church sanctuary, saying Isaiah 1 as he handed them out to everyone who left. And then I would watch him do that four or five weeks a year. And some people would just blow right past him without acknowledging him, treating him like he was a panhandler or something. But he wasn't deterred. He would be just as enthusiastic with the next person. You know, at some point during my teenage years, I think, my my dad took his act on the road. He would walk through the neighborhood, going to businesses, fire stations, police stations, you name it, handing out candy canes and saying, here you go, enjoy, Isaiah 1. Well, what happened more often in the community than in the church was that usually someone would ask him, what do you mean, Isaiah 1? Well, that was all my dad needed. He would always respond, oh, I mean my favorite scripture in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Well, then he would take the candy cane and say, You see the two colors on the candy cane? The red stripe reminds me that I'm a sinner. 
and can't fix myself no matter how hard I try. But the white stripe reminds me that Jesus took the punishment I deserved. And because I believe that by faith, I am white as snow. That's all it takes, but you gotta believe. So in case you're wondering, that's why he would do it. This was followed by a string of people from the community who had similar interactions with John. All of them knowing the candy cane teaching he did. John eventually started visiting these businesses all year long. The fire chief came up and said John would come by once a week checking on everyone, sometimes bringing food for them. One of the police officers said John would stop by and ask if any of them needed prayer. He said the first few months the cops were polite, but they weren't interested in prayer. That changed for some of them when there was a drunk driving incident that took the life of a young mother. Suddenly prayer was okay, and John was right there to help. He was followed by a local businessman and then a city councilwoman. If time had allowed, I began to think that we would be there until midnight, hearing from people about the impact he had made that so few of us really knew. Olivia returned to say, A few weeks ago, we were all together for a holiday, grilling burgers and hot dogs at Dad's house. As my sister and I were getting the picnic table set, he randomly said, You know what I want at my funeral? Well, immediately, Carol and I told him to be quiet and not talk about such things. Well, undeterred, Dad said, I want a bagpiper to play Amazing Grace. Well, wanting to change the subject, I quickly said, fine, Dad, whatever. Well, unfortunately, we didn't have to wait long to give him his wish. Olivia looked to be leaving the stage when she quickly darted back to the microphone. Oh, oh, I almost forgot one thing about the candy cane. Watching him at church, I noticed that every so often he would reach into his suit pocket and pull out a larger candy cane for a select few people. So I asked him why he did that, and all he said in response was, Well, sometimes I see someone and the Holy Spirit just gives me a little poke, like he's saying, Hey, that person really needs to be reminded of my love for them. Well, Dad, I will see you in heaven someday. In the meantime, try not to take St. Peter's job up there, would you? He's been a greeter longer than you. At that point, the funeral director came forward, asked the congregation to stand, and passed by the casket one more time in honor of John's life. I stood at the head of the casket, as we pastors do, and watched the many whose lives had been altered by John Campbell pass by one more time as a haunting and familiar refrain was played. As it played, 
I realize what the Lord and John Campbell have been trying to tell me all these years. God doesn't love me at my best. He doesn't just love the best version of me. He loves me at my worst. He loves the worst version of me. He just loves me. And though my sins of pride, anger, bitterness, cynicism, and doubt were as scarlet, Jesus already paid the price for them, and I am white as snow. I will never forget that, John. I promise. So this Christmas, with Carol and Olivia's permission, our church is doing a candy cane outreach. We are taking the simple but powerful message of John Campbell to our neighborhood and world. We are supplying the candy canes. Our people are supplying the message. We will give away as many as possible, all the while simply saying, Isaiah 1, unless they ask us what that means in which case we will gladly tell them. So if you find yourself gritting your teeth and bracing yourself through another Christmas season, take a lesson from my life. God cares about your pain, but don't let it stop you from realizing there are people in much worse shape who desperately need a John Campbell to invade their world, coated with sugar if necessary. hope you enjoyed uh, the reading of The Candy Cane Man. I hope it brought you some inspiration. And if you're not in the Christmas mood yet, hopefully this got you there. And I want to thank you and appreciate you being a part of the Madcast. Please share this with a friend. We would love to expand our Madcast family. If you have questions or comments, please email me at madcastworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information or to hear our archives, you can go to mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.